Welcome back to World History Podcasts. As always, I'm Mr. McEwen, and we have another World War I section. Now, if you remember from last time, we covered World War I, and that was mostly the weapons and tactics and a couple battles and whatnot of World War I. So we covered the tanks, we covered grenades, French warfare, of course, no man's land, and all that good fun stuff. And now we're going to move on to some of the more political aspects of the war and, you know, who was in charge of what country, motivations, those kind of things. I know we kind of touched on that briefly when we talked about the alliances and everything and the assassination of Archduke Francis Ferdinand, but we're going to talk about, um, you know, some of the other people. So here's just a little quick outline. These are the major leaders of World War I that we're going to be covering. So we have Tsar Nicholas II, David Lloyd George, Georgius Benjamin Clemenceau, Emperor Franz Joseph, Woodrow Wilson, and Kaiser Wilhelm II. Don't worry if, you know, I'm going to go over each of these individuals. That's just kind of the big group. So let's start off with Tsar Nicholas II. And Tsar means king, as in king of Russia, because Tsar is Russian. So just to give you a little uh, kind of backstory here, Russia was not as industrialized as the other countries going into the war. They didn't have as many railways or manufacturing plants and so forth. So um, they had a lot of trouble with keeping everyone supplied as far as their troops go. And we kind of alluded to this earlier when we talked about the amount of gas masks that were available. So um, anyhow, overall, they suffered a lot of heavy losses early on just because people were getting their butts kicked on the battlefield. We didn't have, you know, the Russians didn't have enough um, supplies and so forth. So because of all these early losses, morale was hurt especially. Morale is the state of the spirits of a person or a, or group as exhibited by confidence, cheerfulness, discipline, and willingness to perform assigned tasks. Basically what it comes down to is were they okay with being out there or were they like, this is the worst battle ever? Because if they're happy troops, they'll be good fighting troops. So, um, And it was also kind of thought, well, the Tsar kind of thought that if he was actually on the battlefield, it would help to motivate his troops, because look, our king is with us and fighting. Um, so he went to the battlefield, and he was not the best military commander, uh, so that didn't go the best, and while he was on the battlefield, a whole bunch of problems were going on back home in Russia, and we're going to get into that later on when we get into our Russian Revolution unit, a la Rasputin. So anyhow, that's the quick version of Tsar Nicholas. So now let's talk about David Lloyd George, and he is the Prime Minister of Great Britain at the time, um, so he was dependent on party support, so it wasn't just like he had ultimate say, but you know his party kind of dictated a lot of things, we'll kind of get into the reason why I bring that up a little bit later on. Um, he did not have complete military control, kind of the quick version for right now, so he had to ask his people to adopt wartime rationing of food. Um, he had a ton of issues with work stoppages um, and strikes going on in the in the plants and factories and so forth. It was a regular occurrence. Um, he tried to do anything and everything um, to make sure that you know they would be okay. Um, and actually, a lot of the stuff he came up with were used in the future coming to World War II. So. We'll refer back to him when we get to World War II. But anyhow, one of the things he uh, instituted was conscription, or a mandatory military draft. And this put uh, roughly 6 million out of 10 million eligible, fit young men into service. So uh, we instituted the draft. Let's uh, talk about another prime minister, the prime minister of France, which is Georges Benjamin Clemenceau. And 
he was, um, for the most part, able to get everyone on, uh, you know, his cabinet and in the party to kind of organized and got all the government to work together, for the most part, in wartime, which is easier said than done sometime. Uh, he would visit the trenches to boost morale, um, and he would also, you know, go around and boost morale within the cities. And this was a pretty big deal because uh, the Germans got very close to taking over the heart of France, which was Paris. They got within five miles um, and we'll kind of uh, allude to that story a little bit more later on, which is kind of an interesting story. But moving on down the chain of command here for another emperor this time, Emperor Franz Joseph, Emperor of Austria-Hungary. He was an old, tired leader. He was really hoping that uh, Archduke guy was going to take over for him. But yeah, remember, Archduke Francis Ferdinand, yeah, not, uh, not around. Um, and, and he died in office uh, in 1916. And, you know, after that, his his country just empire kind of dissolved and really wasn't as effective in later in the war. It was mostly Germany. Woodrow Wilson is our next one, president of the United States. Um, for the most part during the war, the United States was neutral. We did not want to get involved. And, you know, we need to stay out of war. Actually, his, re his campaign, re-election campaign slogan was, he kept us out of war. He was so proud of that. So he made it part of his campaign. And, yeah, of course, then they went into war shortly thereafter. Um, but, you know, during all of the war, we wanted to stay neutral for the most part because we were, we being the United States, we're an economic powerhouse. And, you know, if we don't pick sides, we, in theory, can, you know, trade either side. So um, because of all that, we really didn't militarize as quickly as the other countries. But the United States, we weren't going to stay neutral forever. A couple things helped to push us towards war. One of the things was the sinking of the Lusitania. And the Lusitania was this um, British cruise liner that had 124 Americans on it. And when it was sank by German U-boat U-20, it made America pretty upset. This was part of, uh, they, they started, well, originally they had the Sussex Pledge, meaning the Germans would not fire on, like, unarmed civilian ships without warning them and making sure everyone was safe. But later on they got rid of that and they had unrestricted submarine warfare, which means there's no restrictions. They can attack and do whatever they want with their submarines. Also, American businesses started putting pressure on the United States to like, hey, we need to join the war and we probably need to not join the Germans and Austrian-Hungarians kind of thing. So in the end, we did join the war, but we were kind of like the cavalry showing up at the end of the movie, getting all the glory. The rest of the uh, countries who fought World War I were not the happiest with us because they're like, thanks for your help, but... Uh, we have been fighting this war for three years. You only fought for one year. This does not seem fair, but thank you for your help. We needed it kind of thing. Anyhow, moving on. Kaiser Wilhelm II, Emperor of Germany. Um, kind of weird fact here. He was related to British royalty. Um, and also another weird fact, he had a withered left hand from childbirth. He tried to hide it for the most part. Kind of weird there. But anyhow, um, he wanted the German Empire to become strong and expand. That was kind of his motivation for World War I. And he believed in military strength, which, you know, he started building up his military, which caused everyone else to build up their military, and then caused all of Europe to be just one big, giant powder keg. And this is a la militarism. Uh, by the end of the war, he was more of a figurehead than really making all the, uh, the shots, calling all the shots and whatnot. So, all right, let's, let's get into some... Um, some more kind of like political maneuvers and, you know, overall strategies. And the first one we're going to talk about is the 
Schlieffen Plan. I'm sure my pronunciation is terrible. So 1905, Schlieffen, who was the chief of German general staff, identified the strategies in which an attack on Europe would happen. So he figured... This, remember, this is 1905, and this wasn't impl- um, you know, used until 1914, so things change uh, for the record. But anyhow, he felt that France is the most dangerous of all of Europe, so that should be the very first area of attack, and it should be a surprise attack. And they figured if the Germans did really well and really beat up the French, it would scare the British. They're like, whoa, did you see what they did to France? We probably should not get involved with that. Um, and then he figured after that, you know, once they attacked France, it was going to take Russia at least six weeks to get ready. So they would have plenty of time kicking France's butt and then have all this time left over that they could go get ready to fight Russia because Russia wouldn't even be ready for six weeks. That's what they thought. So um, sadly, there were some miscalculations there because once they went after France, remember, going through Belgium, which made Britain angry, on August 1914, Russian armies started pushing to eastern Germany and they're like, what? Where did this happen or come from? Um, Then at the Battle of Tannenberg, the Russians suffered very heavy casualties, and then they started to retreat. So even though the the Germans, I'm sorry, the Russians got there, they got their butts kicked, and then they started retreating. And then actually from that point on in the war, remember this is early on in the war too, that point on, all battles against Russia would be fought on Russian soil. But remember, Russia had a lot of soil, so they could afford to give up, I guess, a couple. All right, moving on here. So... Um, The southeastern portion of Europe, um, we're going to talk about kind of Italy area. And remember, I didn't really mention Italy too much. If you remember from the previous, I kind of said that Italy was kind of a flip-flopper, not the best of friends because they kept trading sides. Well, 1915, Italy flip-flopped and signed a secret treaty with um, Britain and France and Russia and said um, basically, hey, you know that central power group, that triple alliance I was part of? Sorry, I'm taking off. And they actually turned their guns around, and started firing at Austria-Hungary. So now the Germans and the Austrian-Hungarians started to attack Italian forces. Well, the Italian forces weren't doing too good. They started to retreat, so that's not going well. And if you remember earlier, I said Germany was actually doing fairly good against France. Um, So they made it within five miles of Paris, and they were probably going to win, and they had the upper hand, but then... The French generals commandeered around 600 taxicabs and started to transport 6,000 reinforcements to the front lines. And so the taxicabs were, you know, credited with turning the tide of, of battle and war, which was kind of cool. Um, now, I know we're talking mostly about Europe. Remember, this was a world war. So Japan did join Britain. And so even though Japan was like in the war, not really. They were kind of self-serving. They took uh, they took out some German outposts that were in China. It was kind of basically an excuse to take over parts of China for themselves. Um, and and besides Japan, a whole bunch of other countries and colonies, especially, all started to help out with supplies and troops and everything. So that's kind of how everyone got pulled into. So uh, let's um, we're going to change gears a little bit here. We're going to talk about the economic impact of war. So. War is expensive, and especially when you spend a whole bunch of money building a tank, and then that tank gets blowed up, well, where did all your money go? You just got some mangled pieces of metal. So, yeah, um, war is expensive. So the government had to raise taxes. And when I say governments, I, I, government, I mean governments with an S. Like, all governments had to raise taxes. They had to borrow lots of money. 
a lot of them borrowed money from America, actually. Um, and all this had to pay for war. I mean, everything was just so expensive. Also, on the home front, food was rationed, gasoline was rationed, a lot of stuff was rationed, so more things could be sent to the troops. Um, also on the home front, we see the widespread of propaganda. And propaganda is textbook definition time. The spreading of ideas to promote a cause or to damage an opposing cause. Basically to kind of influence public opinion. Um, and sometimes we would even see the censoring of the press or keeping information out of the press, um, you know, depending on what it was. And, you know, a lot of this censoring was to kind of keep casualty numbers away from the public so people wouldn't be like, oh my gosh, that many people died in just one day or just one battle battle. So I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, so anyhow, um, this, this this censorship and restriction um, you know, even went beyond just like the press release, popular literature, historical writings, motion pictures, the arts, all of this kind of had some censorship um, going along with it. And uh, just to kind of give you a little idea of how the propaganda worked a little bit here, the Allied propaganda, and I say Allies, it's more the triple entente, um, usually referred to the germs, um, you know, basically as being kind of almost animals and like, you know, using words like barbarous acts of, you know, hatred and so forth and, you know, all these German atrocities against innocence and, you know, some of the stuff was kind of stretched a little bit or just completely false. Um, and then on the flip side, the Germans, um, you know, I have a little clip here for you. When I mean clip, I mean I'm going to read it to you, um, of propaganda that was used. And this is the Hymn of Hate, and it was against the British, and it says... I'm going to do my best sing-songy voice for you. Hate by water and hate by land. Hate of the head and hate of the hand. We love as one, we hate as one. We have one foe and one alo England! Yep. Pretty awesome. I know. I have an amazing singing voice. So there's tons and tons of propaganda that was used during the war, and there's tons of stuff online if you ever want to see all that. Just do a quick search for World War I propaganda. You won't have any problem finding it. Um, or you can go on my website or through my Google Drive and download some of the PowerPoints that have pictures of all these things that I'm talking about and written words if you want to read it too. All right, next up, we're going to be talking about the impacts of war, genocide. So genocide definition time here for you. The deliberate killing of a large group of people, especially those of a particular ethnic group or nation. So just to give you a couple examples of some historical genocides here, Armenian Genocide, which we're going to be talking about here, the Holocaust, Cambodia, Rwanda, Darfur. So those are the main ones um, when we think of like historical genocides. Uh, so Armenian one we're going to be talking about here. So just to give you an idea, there was around 2 million Armenians that were living under the Ottoman Empire, and we're going to be talking primarily about the Turkish government here. So um, under the pretense of World War I, so they were just like, well, this is part of World War I here. The Turkish government systematically killed 1.5 million people with the end goal that they were hoping to unify all of the Turkish people and create a new empire with one language and one religion. And this is, you know, think of the Holocaust and this killing and starvation and just terrible treatment and so forth, and that's basically what you have with the Armenian Genocide. And uh, still to this day, Turkey uh, denies that this happened, at least to the extent that they say that there was no will to exterminate the Armenian people. But if you look through history here, it kind of says otherwise. Um, so anyhow, moving on here, let's do another impact on, and this is going to be the impact on women during World War I, because women 
did help out with the war. They did not see active combat, at least not in any like huge capacity. Um, so most of the men were at war, so women started to help out with the workforce back home. Um, and this really helped the economy. They built weapons and supplies. And then the ones that did kind of help out in the war specifically would have been like nurses on the battlefield. And so moving on here, that's just a little quick version. We'll go into this more in depth. Uh, you know, eventually we'll get there. But um, just a real quick little note here. And if you remember, I said Russia wasn't doing too well because of poor leadership, corruption, and food shortages. And all of this led to a Russian revolution, which is going to be our next unit. So I just want to kind of give you a little idea of where this takes place in our notes. But um, basically, Russia dropped out um, in early 1918. Um, and this was kind of the end of their involvement, and then they had their own little Russian Revolution, which we'll talk about. And the reason that this was a significant to talk about for the war is it made it a one-front war, meaning Germany did not have to split their troops from fighting half their troops over here fighting Russia and the other half on the other side fighting France and Britain, so they could move all their troops to one side. So um, that was kind of um, a big deal for the changing of the war. So remember, this is early 1918. Well... Just a little bit before that, the Zimmerman note or Zimmerman telegram was sent, and this was a letter that was sent by Arthur Zimmerman, Germany's foreign secretary, to Mexico, and it was intercepted by the British and shown to the United States. And basically this note or telegram said, hey, Mexico, this is me saying, hey, I'm Germany, saying, hey, this is, hey Mexico, this is Germany. You should declare war on the United States. And if you do that, we'll give you land in the United States, which... Not really sure Germany had any uh, right to do that because Mexico would have been technically doing all the fighting. But here's a, a couple little lines from it: "We, meaning Germany, shall endeavor to keep the United States neutral out of war. In the event of this not succeeding or not happening, we make Mexico a proposal of alliance, meaning, hey, let's be buddies." Make war together, make peace together, and Mexico is to reconquer the lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. So basically, like, hey, look, join us, and you go fight, and that will be good. Because they were afraid the United States was going to enter the war, which, hey, guess what they did on April 6, 1917. Um, we'll talk about that more in a second. Um, but that, that letter kind of helped to push us to join war. So they were trying to make sure the United States would not join war, keeping us busy by having us fight Mexico, and it actually just kind of pushed us. So anyhow, to, to sum that up for you, the sinking of the Lusitania, that made us pretty upset with as far as going to war. The ending of the Sussex Pledge, which that led to the unrestricted submarine warfare, and then the Zimmerman note slash telegram, those kind of three things combined and some civil unrest and you know political pressure within the country and so forth and businesses – May the United States decide to go to war on April 6, 1917. And when asking to go to war, Woodrow Wilson, um, he kind of, he, here's some different quotes from him that I thought was interesting because he had to get congressional approval to go to war. And it said, we have no selfish ends to serve, um, which I thought was like, look, we're going to war, but it's not for selfish reasons. Like, we need to go to war kind of thing. Um, also, um, he said, to make the world safe for democracy. Okay, so if we go to war, the whole world will be safe, and everyone can be a democracy if they want to. And he finally said, this is the war to end all wars. So I am going to just 
pause there for a second, and we will uh, return back and talk a little bit about Woodrow Wilson and his belief, because he's going into war, but like kind of his end goal for it. So we'll be back in just a moment. 